Amen, amen. Our youth can be dismissed to the youth room tonight, and we are glad you're here. Amen. Glad you're here on this Wednesday evening, and I've been looking forward all week to coming and continuing in the study that we began last Wednesday night. And uh, again, I must tell you before that we get started tonight that we may not get to a conclusion tonight. Hopefully we will, uh, but we may not get to a conclusion even yet tonight uh, as I have uh, continued to think in this subject that has just begun to explode in my mind and um, um, we'll see. We'll just see how it turns out. Amen. Amen. Last week, we began uh, in 2 Kings chapter 22, and we began talking about the story of Josiah as he became ruler and as he um, began to rebuild the house of the Lord and found the book of law that had been lost. And uh, we started last week talking about valuing the house of the Lord, valuing the house of the Lord. I was thinking this week in preparation for tonight, um, I, as I grow older, I become more thankful for my upbringing. How many of you understand that in your own life? I become th more thankful for my upbringing. I, I grew up with a reverence for the house of the Lord. Uh, if we didn't reverence the house of the Lord, um, we paid a great price on the backside for not reverencing the house of the Lord. And so uh, the fear of the Lord was prevalent in our home, and so was the fear of my father. Uh, not literally fear, but we knew where the lines were drawn. And so we grew up reverencing the house of the Lord. And as a kid, I grew up knowing how to behave in the house of the Lord. And um, there were so many things I've watched over time as things seem to be so different today than they were uh, in my day growing up. Um, I remember sitting on the pew and uh, getting called out because I was sitting with the youth group and getting called out. My name got called out because a friend, two, two people down from me, was talking to somebody next to him. Cindy, you know anything about that? We, we, we often attack Brother Price over those things, and uh, in a teasing way, of course. Um, I, I recall, I recall um, someone next to me handed me a note asking me to pass it to the person next to me. And so I was just the conduit. I didn't originate the note. They just handed me the note, and I handed it over to the person next to me. And who got called out? Any of you ever got called out in church? It's not a pleasant thing. I, I'm not a caller-outer, all right? Uh, I'm not one. Uh, I probably tolerate a lot of things. Uh, that may not always may not always be pleasing. Uh, I do want to, while I'm here, uh, 
I do want to, to put a plug in for reverencing the house of the Lord. And distractions in a church service can be detrimental to a guest, to a speaker, to a preacher. And that's why we must be very careful in how we handle how we handle things. I've had people say things to me, and I've learned to tune out children. Uh, it's strange, after you have three children of your own, uh, and particularly twins, uh, and that's a whole different dynamic, that um, I can be teaching and preaching, and rarely, rarely do I pay any attention to babies crying. I have learned to tune it out. Now, others, may, that may not be the case, but we must be careful uh, if there is a distraction going on. One of the things that may be more distract, distracting than a, than a baby crying or uh, oftentimes is uh, parents or people sitting around a child playing with a child during church where all the attention. You know, you're up here preaching and you're, you're, or you're worshiping and singing and everybody's like, oh, hey, hi. And you're like, well, are they getting my attention? Oh, no, no, they're just playing with a baby. And so we have to be careful because particularly when a guest comes and everything is sensitive and they're on edge and they're looking and trying to figure out where and what to watch for. And so we should be, we should be very careful. Um, the Scripture even teaches us that, that we ought to learn how to behave ourselves in the house of the Lord. And so those things are very, very important um, to us. And as a church, let's be careful to never lose those, that reverence of the house of the Lord. And, uh, you know, there's, sometimes we need to go out. Sometimes there's emergencies. And when there's emergencies, there's emergencies. We understand that. But sometimes just the needless walking in and out, particularly at the wrong time. We can choose a time to walk out, but just... Sometimes the movement can be detrimental. And so every church service, while it may be old hat to us, somebody may be here and they may be tuned in. They may, it may be exactly what they need and we have to be careful not to distract them and learn to value every service. To value every move of God. When the Spirit of the Lord begins to move in a service, we need to learn to value that. Value that moment. These, these moments, uh, they don't come cheap. They come with a price a prayer and fasting and dedication. And when God begins to move, we must value, learn to value those things. Now, Josiah didn't grow up in this kind of environment. I want to kind of pick up here, and I'm going to recap just a little bit and, and a few things that I didn't say last week that I want to say as I move on toward Matthew 25. Josiah did not grow up in this kind of environment. Josiah's great-grandfather was King Hezekiah. Anybody ever heard of Hezekiah? King Hezekiah was a godly leader and was known as a reformer. He was one that brought about change. And he was a reformer. He was a godly man. And... Uh, Hezekiah did many good things, and he also had some, some faults and some failures in his life. But Hezekiah had a son who was the grandfather of Josiah, and his name 
was Manasseh. Anybody heard the name Manasseh? Manasseh is known as the most evil king ever in Judah. The Bible even says of Manasseh that he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's that's pretty major. When what's written in the pages of Scripture about you is he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And during his reign of, I believe it was around 38 years or so of his reign, during Manasseh's reign, in his evil reign, the temple decayed. Because in his evil reign, he spent no energy, no time, no effort on the house of the Lord. And during his reign is when the scholars believe that this is the time, somewhere during his reign is the time that the book of law was lost. And we talked a little of that about this last night because the very purpose of the very purpose of the temple was that the priest would come and they would get the book of law and they would read it and expound upon it and make it plain and make it clear to the people. And uh, they would preach, in other words. And they would teach and they would talk. But somewhere during this evil reign, the, the focus off of the things of God was no longer important. Somewhere the entire purpose of the temple shifted. People still gathered, but there was no book. There was no book. And so during Manasseh's reign, the temple becomes in disarray. It decays. It is is in need of repairs. And the book is lost. And then... Manasseh had a son and he followed him and this is Josiah's father and his name is Ammon. And Ammon was known, very little is known about Ammon. He had a very short reign before Josiah came into position. But it is said of Ammon that he was untrained, undisciplined, and unproductive. Wow, what do you want your legacy to be? He was untrained, undisciplined, and unproductive. Can I take a little time here to suggest that ungodly leadership, ungodly parenting, ungodly authority will always raise up sons and daughters, if I may add, I'm not being gender specific tonight. We'll always raise up sons that are untrained, undisciplined, and unproductive. Perhaps we need to evaluate our lives and before we criticize the younger generation, remember who raised the younger generation. If they are untrained, undisciplined, and unproductive, I want to ask who really is to blame for that? 
the answer may rest upon us. And so Josiah's father is Ammon. Now watch, watch here. Now we've got Hezekiah, but then we have Manasseh that moves into reign. And Manasseh dies and Ammon moves in. And Josiah is just a baby when his grandfather Manasseh, doubtful that he would have any remembrance of Manasseh at all. His memory would be built around maybe some slight thoughts about a very evil king named Manasseh, his great-grandfather, or his grandfather. He would, not, he would know nothing of his grandfather Hezekiah. He had been dead many years before he was even born. And so he grew up, and everything that he knew about the temple was what was taught to him by an evil king the most evil king, and an untrained, undisciplined, unproductive father. That's pretty frightening. And along comes Josiah. Now I'm picking back up into our text last week because I wanted to make some things clear. Josiah, the very name Josiah means healer. And as a king, Josiah did the work of a servant. Josiah didn't have to do the work of a servant, but Josiah valued the things of God more than did his father or his grandfather. Maybe he had heard stories about his great-grandfather Maybe, maybe there was something in him that was deeper or greater than that of what, what he had learned to understand or, or know. And Josiah steps into leadership, looks around and says, Wow, the temple is in decay. It is falling down. The question that I posed last week do you not think that people had noticed that the temple was in decay before Josiah became the king? I think they did. I think they noticed, but there was no interest in doing because Josiah's father, Ammon, was untrained, undisciplined, and un. Productive. And so Josiah comes into reign. He sees the work that needs to be accomplished. He sees the work that needs to be done. And he says, somebody has to do this work. And he steps into the work and role of a servant and begins to rebuild the temple. At this time, God sees what is being done smiles upon Judah, smiles upon Josiah, and the Lord leads them to find the book that was lost in a back room of the temple somewhere that had been misplaced and put on a shelf. There's so many parallels that we could draw here because obviously there was, obviously there was no attention given to the book or it would have never been lost in the temple. 
So there had to be, so when Josiah begins to do what he should do, here's the frightening thing. Josiah never knew that the temple was supposed to have a book. Watch, this is important. He didn't even grow up knowing about a book in the temple. He knew there was a temple. He knew it was in decay. But he didn't even know that there was supposed to be a book. And they happen upon a book directed by the Lord. And it happens to be the book of law. God revealed to Josiah what two generations had lost. This is what I felt the Lord speak to me through this. I believe that God is giving apostolic, true apostolic uh, revelation and apostolic, a, a, a new uh, cultural shift in the apostolic movement that is not, indeed, it is not anything new. But it is a rebirth of what has been lost through the years of lack of interest or fear. We're seeing a rebirth of the gifts of the Spirit and an operation in the gifts of the Spirit and the working of the Spirit of God. The demonstration of the Holy Ghost being, is being revealed again. This is not by accident. There have been generations that, that squelched and stopped the flow of the Holy Ghost, the moving of the Spirit, and the operation of the gifts. And if you study the Pentecostal church history, the reasoning behind that was that there was an early movement that was called the latter, the latter rain movement. And the latter rain movement got a hold of some things and, and they carried it a little far and uh, there was a lot of wildfire and that's where the term kind of came from. There was wildfire and a lot of things in the church that was unseemly and un, unnatural and unholy and ungodly. And so some godly men for fear that this was going to take over the apostolic movement, put their thumb upon it and said, we must stop it. And in an attempt to prevent wildfire, had completely squelched their entire, their entire segments. What we, we may not know is that there are entire segments of the country. I'm talking about here in the United States. There are segments of the country that are very, very skeptical and leery of the operation of the gifts of the Spirit. Evangelists and preachers and teachers and those that travel and missionaries will talk about some of these pockets and some of these areas being very, very difficult to minister in. There is no revival. There is no harvest. There is nothing is taking place. They're, they're kind of dead zones in the church. The churches aren't growing. There is no movement. They still come to church, but they have prevented the, the moving of the Holy Ghost so long that now there are generations that have come up that have never been part of a real apostolic move of the Holy Ghost where the gifts of the Spirit would operate. And so it's normal to them to sit through a service and not have the Holy Ghost work. Josiah, it was normal for him to go to the temple and for there to be no book. 
He didn't go looking for a book. It came by revelation of the Lord that directed them and they found the book as God had directed. The Lord revealed to them and showed them the book. It was a revelation. What I am saying to you is that there are, there are those that have been seeking God saying, Lord, if there's more, let it be revealed. Let us find it. Let us see it. And through that sincere seeking and working and doing whatever can be done, Josiah was building. And while Josiah is building and working and remodeling and restoring the temple, the Lord said, I'm going to give him a revelation. And he restored what his father and grandfather did not have, and he took them back to the glory days of Judah. Because he was willing to work. He valued the house of God enough to do whatever needed to be done. So here's a statement that I'd like to leave with you tonight. Perhaps some of you have already seen it. It was a little bit of a teaser for this week. But if you refuse to do what needs to be done, it's doubtful that God will ever use you in an area simply to give you pleasure or personal fulfillment. Understand that. When God uses us, it must never be about us. If it's ever about us, instead of it being about Him and the work in which He has called us to do, the operation of the gifts of the Spirit, the fulfillment of any ministry that you may be involved in, the use of any talent that you may have that you use for the kingdom of God is not given to you for your personal pleasure. You may feel fulfilled in doing it, but the reason for your calling is not to bring personal fulfillment. That's a byproduct. The purpose of your calling is not to give you gratification, satisfaction, and to cause you to say, wow, I just love doing this. You may love doing it, but that's not why that God is using you. So when we humble ourselves to do the things that we are not we don't have to do. Well, I'm above that. I'm not going to. I left you a story last week where someone felt like they were above. They were above everything. Remember the story? They were above everything. And everything they were asked to do, they were above it. And when it finally came down before they walked out the door and asking them, what is really, really the problem? The real issue is, is they wanted me to give them a microphone and sit down as pastor and give them an opportunity to be able to stand in the pulpit and tell everybody else what ought to be done. When they had all sorts of problems in their own life. So they had the internal need of teaching, but they needed to be taught. I know you don't know anybody like that. 1 Peter 5 and 6, here's a good scripture for you. Humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in, say it out loud, due time. Everybody say due time. 
All right, let me take you, let me take you to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25. I'm going to read a little while here. All right, Matthew 25. Are you ready? Wake up your neighbor. All right, but he that received one, this is the parable of the talents, okay? But he that received one went and digged in the earth, and what did he do? He hid his Lord's money. Verse 19, read the first four words for me. A week later, after a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh. Let me stop. Who is it that came? All right, let me, let me help you with this. Let me help you with this text. Okay? A lot of people misuse this text. Let me help you with this text. Number one, this is a parable. You know what a parable is? It is a story or an example. It is something that may or may not have been a real event, but it is more of a, a parable is a story that is like unto the kingdom of God. So that's why Jesus would say, a certain man had two sons. And then this, it would go on and say, and this story is like unto. All right? So this is a parable. This is not a reality. A lot of people get this scripture way out of sorts. And they, when I stand before the Lord and the Lord comes to me, I don't find that in the scripture. This is a parable, all right? This is a parable. And here's the way the parable is played out. The Lord in the parable is not the Lord of heaven. It is the Lord of the servants, which is the authority. All right? It is the authority. So the authority of the servants, all right? So verse 19, after a long time, the Lord of those servants, see, there it is. The Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them Five talents more. Woo! Give that person a great big hand. And the Lord said to him, remember who the Lord is here, the authority said unto him, well done, for thou art a good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over the Few things, wake up your neighbor. Thou hast been faithful over the few things, and I will make thee ruler over many things. So after a long time, you've proven to be faithful. Now I'll make you ruler over more. All right? Enter thou into the joy of thy 
Lord, little L, this is not heaven. All right? Enter into the joy of thy Lord. Enter into the joy because you have been productive. We will rejoice and celebrate together as your authority looking at a a servant that has been productive. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. Therefore, your, your servanting, your labor, your task, your work this long time that I gave you five talents and left it with you a long time, I want you to rejoice over these things because I, as your authority, am rejoicing. Enter into the joy of thy little L Lord. Everybody Okay. Okay, verse 22, he also that received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord, little L, said unto him, well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over the few things I will make thee ruler Over many things, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then, he which received one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you were a hard man. The first words over the unproductive servant was a critical word toward his little L Lord, his authority. I knew that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not straw. And I was... Afraid, what's that saying? It's your fault. Is this too much? Am I taking too much lateral movement in the scripture? I think not. He's saying, and it's your fault. I was afraid. It's your fault that I am unproductive. It's your fault that I didn't do anything with what I was given. Reaping where there has not sown, gathering where there has not strawed. And I was afraid, so I went and hid thy talent in the earth. You made me do it. Your fault. You made me do it. And so I went and hid it. Are we at verse 25? I don't want to embellish this. This is King James Version. You like King James Version? All right. Now, we're going to go back and discover a few more things in this, but maybe I'm missing something, but it looks to me like this servant that immediately starts making excuses and then starts blaming his Lord now turns and with a real attitude says, Lo, there, 
Thou hast what is thine. So the, the master, the Lord, comes and to the servant and says, I gave you a talent. And he says, it's your fault I was unproductive. And then throws it at him and says, lo, there, have what's yours. I brought it back to you. You shouldn't complain. And his Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest, you knew better. You knew I reap where I sow not and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money into the exchangers and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him and give it to him which hath ten talents. Now here's, here's how I'm seeing this. I, I think that a good leader, a, a wise leader, would be able to see gifts and talents. A good leader ought to be able to see talents, right? You, you, you have to discover. But a good leader should see talents, particularly of his servants. And so here the master comes and he says, Brother Ron, I'm going to give you five talents. I believe in you. I'm going to give you five talents. Now, I believe the Lord knew all along, his master knew all along, listen, this is a ten-talent man right here. He's a ten-talent dude. But we all know you don't just, you know, sometimes giving people too much too soon can destroy them. And so I'm just going to see if you're going to be faithful. See, you got off last week. You were glad that I didn't point you out. But you sit here, you're going to get it every week. <laughs> so he looks at him and he sees he's a 10-talent guy. But I, I'm just going, I'm not going to give him the opportunity that even matches his potential. I, I hope I can minister to somebody tonight. Because just because you feel like, well, my calling is here, but I'm being used here. Or my talents are here, and I'm being used here. There is an element of faithfulness over a long time. A proving time, a proving season. And the deal is, is particularly people who need affirmation. And this, this if we're not real, real careful, we'll, li we'll live. And this is a, a study for a whole nother time. But we will, we will live out of our shadow. <laughs> And we will lead out of our shadow. And I'll explain what I mean by shadow at another time, not tonight. But for every person that has good qualities, there's also bad qualities. And usually there's bad qualities in us that cause 
the, the good qualities within us, and so we have to learn the good qualities that are within us. And sometimes what we think are good qualities within us is actually us living or leading out of our shadow. In other words, it may be, I'll give an example here because this is the first thing that pops into my head and get, makes it easy for me to be able to explain. I'll use myself for an example here, which is always bad to do. But it may be that I, I grew up in a home. Now, this is not me. You know that I grew up in a good home. But perhaps, let's say I grew up in a home where I did not receive affirmation. I was not affirmed. And so because I was not affirmed, I seek affirmation in everybody. And so I, in order to get your affirmation and everybody's affirmation and to get compliments and people to brag on me, it is a product of, of my upbringing and my raising that in me there is this internal desire to have accolades and compliments. And so I need accolades and compliments. Or it may be for somebody else, it may be attention. They didn't get attention. And we could go on with a whole list of things. I'm just trying to help you understand what I mean when, I, when I'm talking about your shadow. And so because of my need for accolades, I have become a very, very hard worker, which I hope that, that, that I may live up to that. And so I have become a very hard worker, and so I work very hard. But my purpose for working is not necessarily to be productive. My purpose for working is to get you to compliment me. Because I need to hear affirmation from you. So I need it from you. And as soon as I get it from you, I start looking for somebody else. Affirm me. And my whole purpose for working is not to provide for my family, not to accomplish things in the kingdom of God. It is for me and for what it is for my shadow. Although the work is a good thing. So we have to learn to lead from our strengths not from our shadow. So we have to learn, if I have a good work ethic, then I need to learn to lead from my work ethic and be able to overcome the shadow. What is it that drives me and causes me? Because if I lead from that, a lot of people will lead out of fear. They're fearful. They're, they lead out of fear because fear is one of those dark shadows that a lot of people they lead their family out of fear. They're afraid that somebody's going to find out something about them. And so they find friends, people who live out of fear. They find friends, and they tear everybody else down, and they find fault with everybody around them. And they're pulling people down, tearing people down. And the reason they're tearing people down is because they're trying to make themselves look bigger and larger than life and more than what they are. It is because they are, they are trying to influence people out of their shadow out of what happened to them, what caused them. And so and, and, and we do it inadvertently often without even thinking. So we do it in our subconscious. So that's just a little explanation of what I mean by leading out of his shadow. So Jesus comes to, or, or the, the Lord, Jesus didn't come. The Lord comes here. The, 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 the master comes to the, the, the servant and he sees he sees potential in him, and he says, I think he's a ten-talent guy, but until we really put him to the test, we don't know. Is that right? I've never seen a good leader that hadn't been through some tests. 
Those of you who are really outstanding parents, you've probably been through a few things in parenting. Those of you who, who are really gifted in some areas, it's probably because you have some history of enduring some tough times and hard times, and you know what it's like to get through it, persevere, and be successful. And so the master comes and says, he's probably a ten-talent guy, but I'm just going to give him five. And so he goes over here to this other dude, and he says, He's not very talented. I'm not going to tell him that. He's probably not as talented as this other guy is. I'm going to give him two talents, but I, I, know, he's, I, know, I know he's a four-talent guy. And so he gives him two talents. And then he goes over here to this other guy that has a bad attitude. We're going to enjoy this, Brother Ron. We're going to milk this for all it's worth. And so he goes to the guy that has the bad attitude, and he looks at him, and he says, you know what? You're, you may be a ten-talent guy. You're a ten-talent guy with a bad attitude. And he says, you know what? I got to work on that attitude. And if I gave you 10 talents, it ain't going to help your attitude. And I'm more worried about saving you than I am using you. I could give you five talents like this guy with a good attitude over here, but you know what? That's not going to help you. What you need is you need a real lesson in being a servant. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you one talent, and you're not going to like it. And at the moment that he receives the one talent, he becomes angry and goes immediately and digs and hides and says, if I can't be used at the level in which I think I should be used, I won't participate at all. I'll hold it. And then when I am asked, I will say, there, take what's yours. Shut up and don't say anything back to me because I gave it back to you. And the Lord says, take the one talent from him because he's wicked. And that word wicked is a very powerful, powerful word meaning of many, many hidden sins. And he took the one talent from the guy that really has ten talents, but he, he, he couldn't fix his attitude. And he takes it over to the guy that he had just doubled his talents, and he says, you're really only a ten-talent ta ten guy, but I'm about to give you eleven. You know why? Because after a long time, you were still faithful. And faithfulness goes a long way with your master. Now, why did he give the guy he just gave ten talents, he doubled his five talents and gives him ten talents. Why do you think that he gave the guy the extra talent, the bonus talent? Why didn't he give the, why didn't he give the guy that 
had two talents, and he's not the most talented guy, but he needs a little boost. Let's bump him up to five and see what he's going to do with it. Why did he give it to ten and make him an eleven? The only thing that I could see and imagine is because a man that stays real busy and productive with what he has been given will be given more. And he who has a bad attitude because he is not given enough to bring personal pleasure and emotional fulfillment, it will be taken from them. Verse 29 says, For unto everyone that hath shall be given. You know what somebody said to me one time? Find the busiest people in your life and give them things to do because they know how to get it done. For to everyone that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. Wake up your neighbor. But from him that hath not shall be taken away that which he hath. It's all about willingness. Obviously, obviously. Now I'm getting ready. If you're taking notes, I'm going to make a statement that is definitely noteworthy. And it is not mine. I wish I would have thought of this. But I'm going to borrow it from, from Brother Stan Gleason. It's all about willingness to do what you've been asked to do. And anytime, we're talking about value in the house of the Lord. Anytime you work in the house of the Lord, for, for the Lord, you work in a church, you're working with people. People, I've heard a lot of people say, and everybody says, well, more people, more problems. That's not an excuse to not grow a church. That, that statement may have some validity to it, but it's almost a little demotivating. So we have to look, learn to work work through problems and get around problems. But but here's here's you're always going to have disagreements or misunderstandings. But at NAYC this year, Brother Stan Gleason made a statement that rocked my world. I wrote it down. It's been tweeted and sent all over the social media and people have talked about it and preached about it and we'll hear it again and again. The test of submission begins at the point of disagreement. The test of submission begins at the point of disagreement. Because how? Oh, I'm submitted. And I'm submitted. I am submitted to my authority. Guaranteed, I am submitted to my authority. That brother Ron is submitted to his authority. And that brother Danny is submitted to his authority. And that brother Dan to tell you he submitted to his authority. But internally, because he didn't get what brother Ron got or what brother Danny got, he gets a bad attitude and at the point of disagreement, he immediately attacks leadership. And the Lord calls him wicked. He says, you're wicked. And you're slothful. You're unproductive. And if you're not careful, you'll be another Ammon. 
who is unprofitable, unproductive, untrained. The test of submission begins at the point of disagreement because how can you truly, how do you really know that a person is submitted until there is a disagreement? And then the real test of submission is revealed. Are you submitted or are you not submitted? It will be revealed at that point. All right? The people in Josiah's day, I've got about nine minutes here and I'll wrap this up. I'll try to do this on time. The people in Josiah's day didn't just happen upon the book of law. They were working and cleaning a house in the temple and their labor, their, their, their base labor positioned them to find the book. Last week, we started the Bible study with Brother Kevin Spangler giving a testimony about someone that he witnessed to at work. And it really all was birthed out of his, and he made a plug for, for Bible reading because he said, I began to talk to him and the Holy Ghost began to quicken things to me. He said, I began to say things and he said, I realized it was all the things that I had read as I'm reading through the scripture. It seems like a very mediocre task for a guy like Brother Kevin Spangler who wants his moment in the sun on Sunday night for focus on CLC talent. It seems like a simple task, but he said, I'm going to do it because they've, cha they've challenged us and asked us to do it, and there must be something good in it. And so he sits down and begins, he sits down and begins to read through the Word of God, and he reads it again and again, and I think he's his third or fourth time that he's reading through the Scripture. Little did he know that God was setting him up for an encounter at work with a young man that didn't know the truth and he was able to speak truth into him and to quote scripture to him and to share with him the gospel of Jesus Christ and to talk to him about repentance and baptism and how, how, what he needed to do to be saved. And, and he began to, to share with him. Little did he know that while he submitted himself to the behind-the-scenes simple task of Bible reading that God was setting him up for something in his own words to me. He said, it was one of the most exciting things that I've ever done. He said, I'm telling you. He said, I was driving down the road, and he said, I had goosebumps all over me. He said, it was so exciting. It was so fulfilling. How many of you have had those experiences? But had he not submitted himself to a mediocre task of, ah, oh, it's just Bible reading, do I really have to participate? I'd really like to do some other things. I'd really like to do more. See, what you don't know and what I've heard from him many times, he says, Pastor, if, I, if what I'm supposed to do is go out here and high-five people and kiss babies, that's what I'm going to do. But, man, if there's more for me to do, I'm ready to go. I'll do whatever you need. Well, how about Bible reading? Oh, I'm far too handsome for that. I'm far too talented for that mediocre task. And the Lord says, I'm going to give you something that's going to be a memory in your memory book of one of the most fulfilling and thrilling moments since you have been serving me that's going to happen at work, but it cannot happen if you do not submit yourself to do the seemingly task, meaningless task. It is all about setting you up for what I have in your future.
Every great ministry has been proven in small things. Small things please the Lord. He says, because you are faithful over the few. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to wrap this up tonight by saying this to you. We may not always know exactly what to do. Just like people in Josiah's time didn't know exactly what to do. But I promise you, God will give you the specific stuff when we start doing the mediocre stuff that is given to us and asked of us to do. The Lord is not always looking for ability as much as He is looking for availability. And this much I know, people who work in the kingdom of God will develop an appreciation for the things of God. I learned a long time, you know who's going to really, really appreciate that new building out on State Road 28? It's people who are sacrificing to give to possessing our promise. It's people who are sacrificing and giving their Saturdays and their Tuesdays and whenever else that they have, and they're going to appreciate it because you know what? They're going to say, you know what? That's my church. Somebody said out there the other day, man, we're already putting the, we, we walked away the other day and we were spent and there was people with scratches on their arms and hands and somebody was needing a Band-Aid and said, literally, it's blood, sweat, and tears already. But I'm telling you, when you put your blood, sweat, and tears into the kingdom of God, you will have an appreciation for the kingdom of God. You will value it. It will be, it, it will value, you will, it will elevate the value of those things in your life. I remember my dad telling a story about mowing the lawn in the church where he pastored, where I grew up. He was out mowing the lawn on a Saturday afternoon when he tried to find time to squeeze it in and he had tried to get some other people to help with it so that he could take the day for visitation. He was bivocational, had a lot going and he was out and he was pushing, pushing the lawnmower. It was about 100 degrees there in southeast Texas and he's mowing on a Saturday, the lawnmower quit. He had been pulling on it. Finally, he got frustrated, and he said, I shoved that, just took off walking, and I shoved that lawnmower up in the barn. The yard was half mowed, and he said, I've done my part. I'm going to let somebody else do this. And he said, it was one of the few times that I ever heard the audible voice of God. He said, the Lord spoke to me and said, what is your part? And he said, I went back and I pulled that lawnmower out of the garage. And he said, I got down there and messed with it until I got it running. And I went out there and I repented while I mowed the rest of the yard. Josiah was one that was willing to repent for what he didn't cause. The book wasn't lost and the temple was not in decay under his reign and rule. But he repented for what he didn't cause and he rebuilt what he didn't tear down and the Lord rewarded him for what he didn't even know was missing. What I'm trying to say to you is when we begin to do everything we can do for the kingdom of God, and I mean everything we can do for the kingdom of God, get ready. When we value the kingdom of God and it becomes the central focal point of our life and we raise our family not just around, just around a church, but we say 
the church. It matters. The truth matters. What's being preached matters. How people are living matters. And when everything that we do, we wouldn't dare allow somebody to hear us speak against the church. When we value the church, we want to know why that friends and people around us are negative about the church because they probably heard us speak negative about the church. But when all they hear is something positive and somebody says, hey, 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 somebody here just a, not too long ago, somebody came to me and said, Pastor, you're probably going to get a phone call from somebody. And I said, oh, yeah? And they said, yep. I said, why is that? They said, because they came to me and they started tearing down the church. And I said, stop right there. That's my church. I love my church. I love my pastor. I love the people in the church that I go to church with. And yes, there's people with flaws. There's people with failures. And they don't always get it right. But that's my church and I love it. And that's where I raise my family. That's where I pay my tithe. And that's where I give. I give. That's where I labor. That's where I work. Don't, don't start attacking the church. He said they got mad and hung up the phone on me. I said, I hadn't heard anything about it. I still hadn't heard anything about it. Because that's a good way to shut the devil up. Oh, pastor, you calling somebody the devil? The Lord said they're wicked. Unproductive, they're wicked. If all they do is take and never give, they're wicked. If all they do is point fingers at those that are working and laboring and leading, they're wicked. The Lord said, take it from them. What if they get mad? What if they do? They're unproductive. Oh, is that too hard? Okay, I'll quit. It's 8.30, I promised you. Let's stand together. I really do love you. I hope you know that. But we got to have preaching and teaching to be saved. And I'm going to tell you something that I appreciate about this church is that you give me the freedom to stand down here on Wednesday night and speak to you from my heart and tell you what I believe the Scripture's really teaching. And when I go get up on Thursday morning, my inbox is not full of nasty emails. I appreciate that about people that say, preach to me. Let, me, let, let my family be raised in truth. I appreciate that about you. God bless you. God bless you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you tonight for your word. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Thank you, O oh Lord, for directing our lives, for ordering our steps. I pray tonight, Lord, for every home and family, for every person that is here tonight. Lord, I pray that you strengthen them, strengthen every family, every person that is sick, every family that has turmoil or a problem. I pray that that need be supplied tonight. Be with us throughout this week and bring us back into your house, leading God and direct us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Let everyone say amen. God bless you. Greet each other in the name of the Lord.